Romans chapter number 8 this morning. We'll read the first six verses responsively. Romans chapter number 8, verses 1 through 6. I'll read verse number 1 out loud and then you'll join me on verse number 2. We'll alternate like that through verse number 6. Romans chapter number 8, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you do for us. Lord, thank you for our country. Lord, thank you for the salt that is left. We thank you for the remnant that remains. We thank you for those that still desire to see you work in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of your people being here in church again on a Sunday morning to hear God's word being preached. Lord, we're excited about the food and the fellowship. We're excited about all the activities that will take place today, but today is worthless if we don't see your spirit, your presence in our midst through the preaching and teaching of God's word. We've prepared our hearts. We've prepared our minds. We've sang the songs. We've read the scripture. Now, as the word of God is being preached, may we be attentive. May we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. May the Spirit of God fill the pastor as he preaches. We'll yield ourselves to you as best as we know how. We'll ask all these things in your name. Amen. And you may be seated.
There we go. All right. It's going to be a little loud, but I'll take that any day. Amen? Any day, any day at all. You know, that's, that's better than what the world has to put out, isn't it? Uh, I'll take that over kids uh, watching people kill each other, talking about all the filth and vileness of the world. You dropped your tie. Good thing you didn't drop your head. Uh, believe me, that's the first thing that comes off when I get home, too. I know how he feels, amen? Some woman invented the tie. You say, how do you know? Because no man would choke another man this way. Trust me. I, I'm going to ask you for something today. I'm going to need your complete attention for just a little while. There's nothing more important in the world going on what, than what's happening in this room right now. I mean that. Uh, there are lives at stake. There are marriages at stake. There are eternities at stake. And I, I take it very seriously, the preaching of the Word of God. 42 years ago, almost 43 now, I guess, uh, I surrendered to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. I've been preaching for almost 43 years. <sighs> Shut up. <laughs> I've been almost 35 years full-time doing this. And uh, if there's ever been a time in history that it's needed, it is now. Uh, our world is getting farther and farther and farther and farther away from the things of God to where what used to be common knowledge, people don't know anything about anymore. To some of you seasoned old grit, grizzled veterans in, in church, may sound a bit repetitive from time to time, but you have to understand there is a uh, generation that rose up and knew not God. And I need everyone's attention today. We live in a world full of religion. We also live in a world of fast, I did not say accurate, but we live in a world of fast information and a lot of it. You have more information available on that right now than people 50 years ago had at a library. You have access to a library, to the news media. Not that that's worth having. Uh, but you, can, you, can, you have more access to information on your cell phone than people had. I remember going to school. We had to go to the library, and there were books you could check out. Then you had books that you couldn't check out, and you had to stay at the library and write down all the information that you needed. They wouldn't even let you photocopy it. You had to use a pen. <gasps> there was no such thing as Wikipedia. There was no such thing as uh, you actually had uh, people who had, uh, what do you call those, you volume after volume, uh, encyclopedias. Yeah, that's the word. <sighs> E-N-C-Y-L-O-P-E-D-I. Anyway, uh, I remember those. And I remember my dad and mom purchased a set of encyclopedias. We thought we were hot snot on a silver platter. I was nothing but a cold booger on a paper plate. But uh, we have so much information available to us so fast. Listen to this statement, though. Man has so much available that he decides for himself what he wants to believe. Religion 
has become more about what man tells God, God has to accept from man than us obeying what the Bible says. Religion today is man telling God how God must accept what man does. Now look at me. Please listen carefully here. Religion is, well, uh, our good works will fix it. Uh, Our own righteousness, our good deeds, and yet the Bible says that we are all sinners and that because we're all sinners, we're all unrighteous. Now look at me very carefully here. We've even gotten to the point where man has even rewritten the Bible. You have every version known unto man. You have the RSV, the RV. You have the ASV, the NASV. You have the uh, good news for modern monkey. I mean man. Uh, You have uh, the Reader's Digest conversion, uh, condensed version. You have the New King James. You have uh, the, for the Sodomites, you got the HIV. Uh, For the Disney people, you got the M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E version. See, man doesn't like what God said, so man said, I'll take what God said and I'll write in it and I'll take out what I don't like and I'll write it a way that I like so that it'll fit my lifestyle. I get condemned for using the old King James Bible, but I hold in my hands the true word of God. The old King James, the old black book, you can't improve on it. It's the one God has used throughout the centuries for the English-speaking people. So, well, I happen to know a, a theologian. Well, I do too. It was floating down a river. Most theologians couldn't f- preach their way out of a wet paper bag. Just because they have a bunch of letters after their name doesn't mean they're smart. Everybody doing okay? If God wrote it, we have no right to rewrite it. We ought to live what God said, not rewrite what God said to match what we want. My job as a preacher of the word of God is to give you the truth, not my opinion about it, not as I see it. Uh, It is, what does God say? Please listen to this statement very carefully. It doesn't matter what the church says, what does God say? It doesn't matter how I see it, how does God see it? It doesn't matter how some scholar who sat in an office drinking coffee, eating donuts with his feet up on his desk wrote in a book somewhere. I happen to have the very words of God. I don't need another book. I need this book. I thank God for an old preacher. When I was a teenager, surrendered to preach, I went to my pastor, Brother Dyke, six foot four, 245 pounds. Big man. I was five foot nothing and might have weighed 85 pounds, dripping wet with pockets full of bananas. I ain't kidding. I was scrawny. I was little. I said, preacher, God's called me to preach. What do I do? What books should I read? He said, see that one you got tucked under your arm called the Bible? I said, yes, sir. He said, just read that one. I said, but what other books should I read? Should I read commentaries? And should I read? He said, Craig, let me give you some advice. Until you know what God said, don't worry about what other people say about what God said. Amen. 
Uh, well, okay. So for the next many years is all I did is read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible. I went to Bible college. In my first class, they said, you need to read this book that Brother Hiles wrote. And I thought, man, the guy wrote a book. I went down to the bookstore, found out he wrote the whole bookstore. <laughs> he ended up writing over 40 books. I had no idea. I had never read. As I started reading his books, I said, well, yeah, I already knew that, and I know that. That's in the Bible, and that's in the Bible. I didn't read his books to learn things. He was reconfirming what I already knew because it all came out of the Bible. Now, listen very carefully here. It's not what I believe. It's what does God say. It's not how I see it, it's how did God say it. I have a truth today that I wish I could get around the world to every person. I'll not use my opinion. I'm not going to use psychology. We don't need to talk in Greek. You couldn't understand it anyway unless it was food. We don't need uh, uh, Latin. Number one, the Bible was never translated into Latin. It was the Catholics who did that, and they have their own version. A God great enough to create everything that we have is smart enough to give us the words that we need. My Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 4, that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. There has to be an every word Bible somewhere or God's a liar. And my Bible says that God that cannot lie, let God be true and every man a liar. I happen to believe through many, many, many reasons, and you'll have to trust me on this, that we hold in our hands the King James Bible, the very words of God. We'll not need spooky music. Your feelings aren't going to start dancing and get goosebumps and feelings up and down your spine. You're not going to have to lay on the floor and flip-flop and say all the motorcycle names backwards. It's not a matter of how you feel. It's not about music. And I've preached in a lot of churches. I've preached in black churches, white churches, and they got the person sitting at the organ and mm-hmm, all that kind of stuff. We don't need a rock band. I got the rock, which is Jesus. We're not going to need fancy technology, and we're not going to have screens and flashing lights. We're not going to have a jump up and down and dance session. This isn't the dance hall. It's God's house. We're going to rely on the Holy Spirit and the word of God to give us a truth that we need for today. Here it is. Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, it's found in just the first few words. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are, which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Now look at me. God did not create man to sin. Man chose to sin. We chose the very same sin that Satan had committed. It is Satan, the devil, who tempted Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. Is it not? According to Genesis chapter 3. 
So God gave us a free will to choose whom we would listen to. I love my wife, but I don't make her do things. I want her to want to because we love each other. But if she chooses not to, I still love her. Everybody doing okay? Now hang on. When man chose to sin, man chose on him the very same punishment that was given to the devil and the angels that followed him. You see, hell was created before God created man. According to the book of Matthew, hell was created for the devil and the angels. That was before the creation of man. That's what Isaiah 14 is all about. When Satan went before God and said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the seat of the Most High. I will be like God. I will sit on the sides of the mountains, congregation in the north. And God said, no, I will cast you to the pit of hell. Now watch this. That very same devil is the one who came to Adam and Eve in the garden and said, look, you could be like God, knowing good and evil. You could choose for yourself right and wrong. You don't need a Bible. You don't need God to tell you what's right and wrong. You could decide right and wrong for yourself. And man said, I like that idea. And since that very day, we now have man trying to be his own God. Stadiums will be filled today with people that have baseball as their God or basketball or hockey. Is hockey still going on? I thought so. We're still only in April. You see, well, how could God send anybody to hell? He doesn't. We chose that. When we chose to sin, the very same sin that Satan did, man condemned himself to death and hell. God does not want man to go to hell. Matter of fact, that's why he sent Jesus. He didn't send Jesus for the devil and his angels. He sent Jesus for you and I. Now listen to me very carefully here. We're all sinners. There's not a person under the sound of my voice that if you're honest with yourself doesn't really believe that you're a sinner. You've done wrong. And sin puts a barrier between God and and man. God is holy. He's righteous. He cannot look on sin. Now watch this. That means this. There has to be a way for God and us to be put back together so that we could make it to heaven. You see, uh, God's punishment on sin is the same on us as it was the devil because God is just. He couldn't punish the devil one way and punish us a different way. That wouldn't be that wouldn't not be justice. That's why there ought to be uh, if you look at the symbol of justice, it is a blindfolded lady holding the scales that are balanced. Because justice is to be applied no matter to whom it is for. This is my, I, I was involved in Christian education a lot in my uh, years as an assistant pastor. 
And there were times where uh, I would say to my children, my very own children, they, they were going to get in trouble at school. And I would say, I don't care what your last name is. Justice applies to you. doesn't matter who the principal is. By the way, if our lawmakers would go back to keeping the very laws that are on the books, we wouldn't have some of the tr- trouble we have today. But because we're sinners, the Bible says that we are under condemnation. John chapter 3, let me read a verse to you. The Bible says this, verse number 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not, watch this, is condemned already. Now that word condemned. That word condemned does not mean uh, like a building that is unusable. Most of us think that means, well, we're just not usable by God. The word condemned is a much stronger word than that. The word condemned is a legal term. It is a term that means this. You've been accused of being doing wrong. You've been tried by a jury or a judge, you've been found or proven guilty, and you've been sentenced to punishment. It is an entire process to be condemned. In other words, there's wrong. You've been tried for it, not only accused, but tried. You've been found guilty. Then there's been a sentencing phase, and you've been given punishment For the wrong that you were accused of and found guilty of. And God says that those who do not believe in Christ as their Savior, that it's those people who are condemned already. But we read in Romans chapter 8 verse number 1, I'm about to shout. There is therefore now no condemnation. To them who are in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you something? We're all sinners. Can I tell you something else? Jesus came to pay your sin debt for you. God loved us so much that he sent Jesus Christ. Born of a virgin. Lived a sinless life. Lived our righteousness for us. Was crucified and shed his blood as our lamb. Died and was buried three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And on that fourth morning, resurrection came. He conquered sin and death for us. He paid our sin debt for us so that we did not have to die in total condemnation and go to the same place where the devil is, which is hell. By the way, because we're sinners, we all deserve it. We committed the same sin the devil committed. So the same punishment is on the same sin. But Jesus came and paid our sin debt for us. Now watch this. The Bible says the moment that we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, there is therefore now no condemnation. When you get saved, a lot of different things take place. It's kind of like when you got married. You said, I do, and then for the next 50 years, you say, I did what? 
<laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about? Uh huh? Now, wait a minute. There was a lot of things when you said, I do, at the wedding altar. Now, you were agreeing to some things you didn't know you were going to do. Now, you knew those things were out there, but you didn't think you were the one that going to do them. When you get saved, there's a whole lot more that comes with it that you didn't even know. It was a package deal. God tells us when we get saved, we lose the condemnation of our sin. And in God's eyes, we are no longer condemned. I want to talk about that today. God says there's no condemnation. What does that mean, preacher? Well, part of not being condemned means this. Even though we've been found guilty, part of condemnation means we've been pardoned. Jeremiah 33, 8 says this. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, which is another word for sin, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. I'm about to shout. Glory. Did you know the day you get saved, God pardons you? What's a pardon? A pardon comes by a governor or a president or some higher official. Watch this. You've been accused, found guilty in a trial, and sentenced to punishment. And a president, a higher authority, has the ability to issue you a pardon. That means this. Even though you've been found guilty, they can Wipe your record clear. And there's no more punishment. And you can't be tried for it ever again. Amen. 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 It's a five-year, four and a half year old boy in a junior church one day. Man got up and preached on hell. A little four and a half year old boy walked up to his Sunday school teacher and said, I don't want to go to a place like that. And that little lady took her Bible and we, she and I knelt at a little chair. She showed me what God said about trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior. And since that day, 50 years later, I'm still on my way to heaven. Did I quit sinning? No. I have my father's blood. <laughs> Sitting right back there. Wait a minute. I didn't quit sinning. But I received a pardon. God said, I'll take your transgressions and I'll pardon them. Not just the past ones, the present ones, and the future ones. I'll cover all your iniquities. I'll cover all your transgression. I'll cover it all. How did he do that? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And the moment you get saved, in God's eyes, listen to this, you're no longer a sinner in his mind because you've received a pardon. You see, uh, you can never be retried for it. 
when you get saved, you never have to face hell. That means you can't lose your salvation. You didn't do anything to get it. You can't do anything to keep it. It's not you doing the doing. It's God that did the doings. All you got to do is do the receiving. You see, uh, I'm going to make a statement here. If I make you mad, tough. This is why churches shouldn't stand people up in front of the church and exercise what they call church discipline. Stand up and tell the whole church all the bad that you did. Well, number one, you can't forgive them. Only God can. Number two, it's under a pardon, so they're not even guilty in God's eyes. And number three, you'd have to tell everybody your sin before you could help somebody else with theirs. Everybody doing all right? You'll be glad someday I said that because when it's your family, you'll be happy. (laughs) You see, it has to come from a higher authority. The pardon comes from a higher authority. And all of us are sinners in need of the pardon. Guess what? We don't have the highest authority. (laughs) By the way, I don't condone people doing wrong. I had not many months ago, somebody said, well, preacher, you're just trying to cover somebody's sin up. I said, no, I'm not. According to the Bible, the Bible says that Jesus' blood covered their sin up. Don't, don't, don't convict me for covering sin. It's already been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. So why, what authority do we have as a church to judge somebody else's sin when in God's eyes it's not even there? Everybody doing all right? You say, well, preacher... Uh, I, I, I just believe we have a right to know. Yeah, don't, you've you're got your pharisaical snoot got stuck up so far. Don't walk out in the rain, you'll drown. <laughs> what you wanted to be is a gossip. You want to know all the dirt. You want to have all the, the bad information. God says when we get saved, we're pardoned. Amen. Past, present, and future. Number, number next, part of no condemnation means we get justification or justified. I just taught on this Wednesday night in our church, but Romans chapter 4, just turn back a few pages. Romans chapter 4, look at verse number 25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word justify, it means to, uh, literally it means to wipe clean. It means to line us up in a legal order to where it is, there's no wrongdoing. Some have used this statement. Being justified means this. It's just as if I had never sinned. The moment we get saved, Jesus comes. 
He pardons us, but he also justifies us. He steps into the scale and takes our unrighteousness, and by his righteousness, we are made righteous. So we are made in line with him and God the Father. The moment you get saved, you not only received a pardon for all the wrong that you did, but Jesus stepped in the scale and gave you all the righteousness you needed to stand before God as if you had not sinned. Aren't you glad he stepped into the balance? Well, preacher, I'm hoping that my good outweighs the bad. Can I tell you something? It won't happen. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Your righteousness is as filthy rags to God. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.17, Galatians 2.11. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How good do I have to be for my good to outweigh the bad? You have to be as good as Jesus. And guess what? You're not Jesus. Neither am I. You see, it doesn't mean to expunge justifying is not covering it up it's wiping it clean as if it's never even been there justify means it's wiped clean and then sealed by the holy spirit of god that means once you get saved all sin past present and future is in line with christ because it's already cared for If you went through the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we won't take time, but let me mention four names. The Bible says righteous Lot. Lot? Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham's nephew separated from Abraham and pitched his tent towards a city called Sodom. And the Sodomites got so bad that God was going to destroy them. God sent an angel to go into Sodom and Gomorrah and gather up Abraham and his family. And Abraham's married children would not even go with him. His wife and his two daughters still at home came with him. And the angel had to force them out of town. And he said, don't look back, because if you do, God's going to destroy you. And even Lot's wife was so drawn to Sodom that as God was destroying the city, she turned back to look, and she became a pillar of salt. (laughs) Salt licks Sally, amen. (laughs) Now, wait a minute. Sodom was so perverted, listen to this. That his daughters thought that they would never be able to be married. So they both conceived children by their father. That's how perverted Sodom was. Sounds like America today. And yet the Bible says righteous Lot. Lot's actions did not give him righteousness. But Lot was justified in the sight of God because he had been saved. Righteous Lot. How about a man named Abraham? Abraham, by faith, received the righteousness. Abraham 
was 90 years old or thereabouts and had a baby with his wife's handmaid because she couldn't have children. Becomes the father of the Muslim nations, a man named Ishmael. Adultery. Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, where at age 100, God gave him the promise seed. A child named Isaac. So here you have Lot in Sodom. Here you have Abraham who had uh, uh, adultery with his wife's handmaid when he shouldn't have, when he should have been waiting on God. How about a man named David? David had an adulterous affair with a married woman, one of his soldiers. She gets pregnant. He calls Uriah back to be with his wife so that he can cover up his sin. And Uriah had more character and said, my men are out on the battlefield. I'll not go in and be with my wife and be comfortable. And David was grieved and sent word back to the front lines through Uriah himself. Said, put him in the forefront of the battle. And when it gets a time where it's the hottest part of the battle, withdraw everybody but Uriah so that he's killed. David was a murderer. Oh, he was king. He was the man after God's own heart, but he didn't always do right. How about a man named Moses? The great leader of the Hebrews out of the land of Israel. Do you know that Moses killed a man with his very own hands? How about a man named Paul in the New Testament. Paul murdered Christians. Paul sought to kill Christians. He was responsible for the death of countless Christians. Here you have Lot and Abraham and David and Moses. Do they all sound like they lived a perfect life? Not a one of them did. And yet God says that they were righteous. How were they righteous? Because of something called being justified. I'm justified. Happy in Jesus today. Hey, my sins are forgiven. They're all in the past. And I've been made righteous with him by being justified. I'm in line with him. It doesn't take away the fact that I've done wrong. But in God's eyes, because of being saved... It's been justified. Amen. Once someone gets saved, their sin debt is cared for. By the way, everybody look at me. If God's willing to justify them, what right do we to have look down at our pharisaical snoot and say, well, I'm not sure they really got it. Well, they know better. They shouldn't have done that. If God doesn't do it, then keep your mouth shut. That's the nicest way I know how to say that. I did good, didn't I, Mama? Wait a minute. We have no right to judge somebody else. We have no right to say, well, I'm not sure they're saved by the way they're acting. You're not the one to decide that. God is. If you followed the people of the Bible that you look up to, you probably would have said that they weren't saved either at times. Everybody doing okay? 
We have no right to judge somebody else. We have the right to give them the gospel. If they get saved, they got saved. That's up to them. Their standing with God is between them, not between you. Boy, that's good stuff. Amen, preacher. Thank you. Why do we want to be like the devil and be the accuser of the brethren? The Bible calls the devil the accuser of the brethren. Not the accuser of the lost, the accuser of the saved. I get sick and tired of Christians. Well, uh, they said they got saved, but they sure didn't live it, so I don't know. Well, you don't have to know. They didn't pray to you anyway. You know how many people I've won to the Lord on their deathbed? <laughs> I won a man to Christ one day who was dying. He was in an oxygen tank. Couldn't, couldn't breathe. I was in California. Now watch this. He couldn't blink his eyes. He was conscious enough. I stuck my hand under the tent, put my hand in his, and he went like this. He could squeeze my hand. I said, William, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. He went, I said, I'm about to give you the gospel. You're about to die. If you die without Jesus, you're going to go to hell. I said, one squeeze is yes, two squeezes are no. Got it? One squeeze. I began to give him the gospel. I got in under that tent. I walked him down the Romans road. I said, William, if you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? And it was one squeeze, two squeezes, and he wouldn't let go. And I said, wouldn't you like to trust Jesus to take you to heaven? And it was one squeeze. He couldn't talk. He was hearing my voice. I led him in a prayer that was similar to this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know because I'm a sinner, I deserve to die. And because I'm dying and I'm a sinner, I deserve hell. But I'll trust Jesus and what he did for me to take me to heaven. I looked up. There were tears coming out the side of that man's eyes. I said, William, did you do that? He squeezed my hand and he wouldn't let go. My ring was digging into my fingers. And I said, according to the Bible, then you're on your way to heaven, buddy. 30 minutes later, he passed off into eternity. I preached his funeral. Craziest funeral ever. It was the first funeral I ever did. And it was the worst funeral I ever had to do. We were having fist fights in the funeral home. They told me to leave. I left. I went all the way back to the church. There was a, uh, his brother got out of jail just to have the funeral. We had already planned the funeral. Oh, it was a feud. I was in the chapel of the funeral. They called me back, said, look, they just said, come on back. I went back. One side that was feuding was on this side, one side on this side, aisle down the middle. And there was people walking up and down the aisle, keep people from crossing the aisle, hitting and smacking each other. I got up and I preached William's funeral. Happened to be a black man. He, his brother had a black pastor there. We, I shared part of the funeral with him. I got to preaching. I told the story about William getting saved. I got with it. I forgot where I was. Y'all know how I... 
pulpit. I got so upset with some of those folks bickering and fighting. I said, William wouldn't want you. And I hit that casket and I started going. (laughs) If he'd have popped out of there, I'm running. I thought, "Uh oh, don't do that. I'm not kidding. I did. I gave an invitation. I asked how many people wanted to get saved. Hands going up both sides of the room. I thought, yeah, right. I said, if you really mean business and you want to get saved, get up from your seat, come here and kneel right down here in front of the pulpit. Do you realize 42 people got up out of their chairs, came down here, and got saved? They got up, they started crying, and the fussing was over, started hugging each other, getting right. A little black preacher leaned over to him. He said, hey, preacher, can I get a copy of that sermon for my church on Sunday? Because here, here you go. Don't tell anybody where you got it, though. I'm getting out of here. Can I tell you something? Jesus can take care of it. He can justify you. Well, I'm not sure somebody could get saved that close to dying. Well, how about what Jesus did to a thief on the cross? He said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to live a good life. He didn't have time to join a church. He didn't have time to get baptized. But Jesus said, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Number next, no condemnation means this. God imputes his righteousness to our account. Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Let me read a couple verses to you here. Romans 4, 6 through 8. Even as David also described the blessedness of man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That means after we've been pardoned, after we've been justified, but Scott, he puts the righteousness of Jesus Christ on my account and on your account. See, my goodness isn't good enough. Even if you could go through life without sinning, you'd still die and go to hell. Because you have to live enough righteousness. And our righteousness because of our sin isn't good enough. The word impute means he adds it to our account. Brother Aaron, the day you and your wife got saved, sitting in your living room, I remember. All the sins you'd committed, and buddy, there was a lot of them. (laughs) God came down into that living room and He not only pardoned you, he not only justified you, but he put Jesus' name and all of his righteousness on the top of your account. And when God sees Aaron Krause's name, he sees all the good things that Jesus did, not all the bad things Aaron's doing, I mean did. (laughs) He put Jesus' righteousness on your account. It wasn't your righteousness. It was the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wow. By the way, Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. How good do you have to be? As good as Jesus. And 
when you get saved, you are pardoned. You are justified. Then he puts the righteousness of Jesus onto your account. And when God sees your life, he doesn't see your life. He sees Jesus' life. Lastly, not lastly, next to last. Being no condemnation means this, we've been forgiven. I want you to listen to this statement. Forgiveness is not for the wrongdoer. It was for the one who was wronged. Forgiveness is not about the wrongdoer. It's about the one who was wrong. 1 John 1 verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now watch this. Forgiveness is not for the person who did wrong. It's for the one for whom you did wrong against. Forgiveness is what allows us to restore the fellowship. Watch this. God made us to fellowship with him, but sin separates. So once we get saved, not only are we pardoned, not only are we justified, not only is the righteousness added to our account, but God has to forgive us so that the fellowship can be restored. It's not about us receiving forgiveness because that makes us clean The forgiveness restores the relationship. Listen to this very carefully here. Just like when you punish a child, there should be some separation involved. And when they finally realize it's all their fault and they want to get right. There was times I would have to punish my children and they weren't ready to receive it. And I said, well, you sit in your room till you're ready. They would come and say, Daddy, I think I'm ready. Daddy, I'm sorry. I'm glad you're sorry, but did you know I'm sorry doesn't fix anything? You can say I'm sorry all day long. You can drive drunk. You can cross the center line and hit some car. As a mama sits on the sidewalk holding a headless child because a drunk driver hit, hit their car, you can say I'm sorry, but it will not bring that child back to life. I'm sorry doesn't fix anything. It may restore the fellowship, but it's not going to fix the sin. And forgiveness is for the one who was done wrong against, not for the wrongdoer. Notice it's God who forgives. It's not us who forgives. God forgives us our sins. Why? So that we could have that that restoration of fellowship. By the way, we're supposed to forgive our enemies, those that hate us. We're to forgive them so we can get them the gospel so they can get saved and one day have fellowship. By the way, the word forgive, let me help you with something. That means to give before the offense. 
God loved us so much, he was willing to restore the fellowship before we even did wrong. I love my children. I decided that my children, if they ever did wrong, there may be a break in fellowship, but never permanent, no matter what they did wrong. Well, it doesn't mean I would agree with all the wrong they do, but there was forgiveness available. It was given before they ever did anything wrong. There's people in this room, you need to forgive yourself for some of your things that you've done in the past. You've never forgiven yourself. God has. Why are you beating yourself up? Why do you sit in your self-pity and your depression? God has forgiven you. Go forward. Number five, and I'm done. Part of no condemnation is he turns us into one of his children. Hold my mule while I shout. Romans chapter 8 says that we receive adoption. We receive, in John chapter 3, we are born again spiritually, and our spirit is reborn. But he also says, because you're saved, I'll also adopt you physically and make you a joint heir with Jesus Christ. We are born spiritually with the genetics of God to give us eternal life. But then he says, I'll also adopt you. You're going to be twice into my family so that you have legal right to everything that I own. What does God own? Everything. I've got to quit. You say, preacher, you make getting saved sound so easy. No, I don't. God did. If I had a child that was lost, don't you think I'd make it easy for that child to come home? Yes, sir. Don't you think I'd do whatever it took to get that child to come home? Don't you think your Heavenly Father looks down at you and says, I want you. I don't want to make it hard. I want it to be as easy as possible so as many as possible could come back. That's the love of our God. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ today, can I challenge you? Get saved. Well, preacher, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proud person. Humble yourself in the sight of God and get saved. To those of you who are saved and you're struggling in your Christian life, God says there is therefore now no condemnation. If you've been saved, can I tell you something? There's no condemnation. There's a pardon. There's a justification. There's an imputation of righteousness. There's an adoption. There's forgiveness. You received all five of those all at once, and that gives you no condemnation. But I want you to remember the verse in John chapter 3 where it says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Before you get saved, you're already in condemnation. 
You need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm not talking about joining the church. I'd love for you to join the church, but that doesn't get you saved. You can be born in a garage and not be a car. You can be born at the hospital, but it doesn't make you an operating room. You see, not where you're born, it's being born again. It's the receiving of what Jesus Christ did for you. It's just a matter of us obeying God. To the Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation. You forgive others, how about you forgive yourself? Maybe some of you are harboring some bitterness against somebody. Then why don't you kneel an old-fashioned altar and get it right? Who are you bitter with? Every head bowed, every eye closed, undone. Wouldn't you like to live the rest of your life not being condemned? Not living under the condemnation of sin? Who'd say, preacher, if I died today... I am 100% sure I'd go to heaven. Would you raise your hand? God bless you. You can put your hands down. Who'd say, preacher, if I died today, and I'm not going to embarrass you just like I did not embarrass them. I will not call your name. You say, preacher, if I died today, I'm not 100% sure I'd go to heaven. Would you raise your hand? All right. Who'd say, preacher, somewhere in that sermon, something I needed today. Would you raise your hand? Oh, my soul, scores and scores and scores of hands. You may put them down. In a moment, the piano begin to play. When the piano begins to play, we'll stand to our feet. When we stand to our feet, if you don't know for sure you've been saved, you come forward. If you've been saved and never baptized and like to take care of that today, we could do it. If you've been saved and baptized by immersion and you'd like to join our church, you come. But may I remind you, baptism and church membership don't get you to heaven. Being saved does. If God moved at your heart and there's something in your heart and your life that you need to get right, how about come kneel in an old-fashioned altar? Humble yourself before God.